Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and this week on Press Advance, we have a great roundup of women who have worked in the White House. I've got Stephanie Grisham, who was the White House press secretary to President Trump and the chief of staff to First Lady Melania Trump. I've got Amisha Cross, who's a Democratic strategist. She was a campaign organizer for Barack Obama and, like me, worked in the Obama White House. Olivia Troy, who is the former Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. You know, when you work in the White House, it's an awe-inspiring, history-filled building with so much power. It can be overwhelming. So I wanted to start by asking them all about their first day walking into the White House. Steph, I'll start with you. I had only been there for like Christmas tours and I was lucky enough to go ahead of time before we took office and I sat down with a press aide in Obama's administration and he walked me around and it was incredibly awe-inspiring and humbling. And I remember he took me out on the colonnade and let me look inside the oval and I could see Obama in there. (laughs) And that was absolutely, I mean, I'll never forget that moment. It was really, really cool. The day we took office, the actual day as a staffer, I was one of the only people who knew where things were and I had already forgotten. So we were really bumbling around, like looking for the light switches and where's the copier and where are the bathrooms and Really, it was just such a hectic day, you almost forget about it, for me anyway. And then I do remember we had beautiful notes left for us. A lot of people had really nice notes left in the drawers and stuff, so that was really great. And then we had some not-so-nice notes left around. And I think that was just kind of a rite of passage. And um, so it was that, that's all I really remember from the first day of being a staffer. But it was still, it was amazing. I remember when some of the White House staff from the Trump administration was saying that they had gotten those not nice notes. And I was like, I don't know a single person in our administration who would have done that. And then in the aftermath, you saw that some celebrities had said when they were there during the administration, they left nasty notes for the Trump team. And I thought, shame on them. They do not know the stakes of the White House or the president of the United States job. Olivia, you had a high stakes job, (laughs) to say the least. Tell me about your first day at the White House. So it was a little bit different for me because I've been in and out of the White House as a policy person. So on my first day, I walk in And like the VP team, they were awesome. Uh, The national security team was super welcoming. There was this guy who's been there, I think for like 40 years now. I don't even know how long he's been there. He's worked for every VP, which was, he had some amazing stories and super welcoming. And then we go to HR and to log in and everything. They were like, we had no idea she was showing up. What do you mean uh, the new Homeland Security officer has started, which is unbelievable to think that that happened in the White House. So I had no access to email for like two weeks. I was like, how am I supposed to do my job? I was stressed out. My second day on the job, there was flooding in Ellicott City in Maryland, which was awful. The National Guardsman lost his life. And like, we get a phone call and Pence was like, I want a briefing on this immediately. And the Coast Guard guy looks at me and he's like, okay, well, scratch that because you're about to brief Pence right now. And so full panic mode, like I'm in and Pence looks up and he's like, well, who are you? And they're like, this is your new homeland person. She's here to advise you. And I just, I'll never forget that day because Pence looks at me and he's like, oh, and he's like, well, isn't this amazing? And he stops and he looks around his office and he's like, never forget that you're here in this amazing, incredible place serving the American people. And I thought, I just thought that was so profound of him to take the moment to say that to me. And then he was like, now tell me about these floods. I do think that, you know, the power of place, the power of the decisions, the power of the history. I mean, really. Now, Amisha, we came in with a hope and change, President. I remember a lot of us were outsiders because we worked against Hillary Clinton on the first campaign. (laughs) So the establishment Democrats didn't all get roles. And a lot of these young people ended up into the White House. So tell me about your first day. Absolutely. And I was one of those young people. Um, I jumped on the hope and change uh, wagon pretty early. But in regards to my first day in the White House, I honestly freaked out. One, because obviously, you know, the pictures, you know, the history, you know, the ghost stories, all of those crazy things. But for me, it felt like I was in something much bigger than me. 
walking through those doors. That was the first time I had ever been to the White House. I knew the importance of the moment. This was the first Black president. This was a president who had everything on his back in regards to, you know, leveling up what it meant to be that for a country, what it meant for Black people, but moreover, what it meant for all minorities and diverse populations, but also acknowledging that you have one chance to get it right. I honestly felt that there was an overwhelming sense of pride, but also one of I've come into this in the digital age. I've come into this, you know, in the early onsets of social media, making it make sense. And part of my job in communications was to ensure that younger populations, diverse groups were consistently engaged with the policies and the actions that this president was carrying out. But I think that holistically, it was also, this is a very big space. And full disclosure, I have the worst uh, spatial memory of all time. So it was, they're showing me around. I'm like, I'm not going to remember this in the next 15, 20 minutes, much less the next few days. I was literally in my head trying to calculate where everything was at the same time and just recognizing, oh my God, like this is real. And just thanking the Lord over and over and over again for the opportunity, but also being like, if I don't remember your name tomorrow or within the next 20 minutes, please blame it on my head and not on my heart because that is not my fault. <laughs> it's a confusing space. It is. It's not a friendly building. I didn't use those back stairs near the VP's office for seriously like the first two years because I just was sure where I was going to end up. So I get it. it. It is. It's like you end up turning a corner and you're like, oh God, am I supposed to be here? Yeah. That's, that's definitely the question. And at what point does Secret Service yell at me yeah. because I walked into the wrong place? Like, please don't draw your gun. I'm just like a dumb staffer trying to figure out where the meeting is. Like, if it makes you feel any better, my first day in the Pentagon many, many years ago, I got so lost and I was a young staffer. I was so embarrassed. I had to call my office and I was supposed to be the assistant in the office. Do you realize how dumb I felt? And I was like, I don't know how to get back to the office. I'm lost. And they're like, where are you? And I was like, somewhere in the pit of the Pentagon. I wish I could tell you. <laughs> they had to come get me. It is not an easy role or an easy place to navigate, not least of which the layout, but it's also a lot of different personalities. It's crazy to me the people who decide to look in the mirror and say, I should be president of the United States of America because I just, I don't understand that so much because it is such an incredible job. But I do think there are some exceptional candidates that do think that this important role deserves their strategy, their mindset, and they throw their hat in the ring for what I think is actually kind of an unenviable position. Nikki Haley is the one woman standing against Donald Trump in the Republican nomination, because this weekend we saw Ron DeSantis end his presidential bid after, you know, talking about Donald Trump and the reasons that he did not believe Donald Trump should be the nominee. He has endorsed Donald Trump and left Nikki Haley to fight on her own. Tim Scott also, surprisingly, because Tim Scott was, of course, appointed to his Senate seat by Nikki Haley, has endorsed the former president. Really, women and I have two who have stood up for a change in the Republican administration right here, Stephanie and Olivia. Women are the ones standing against Donald Trump. And it pains me. Sometimes I read Cassidy Hutchinson's book. I've read Stephanie's book as well. I don't know why more people aren't standing up for a change in leadership. And Stephanie, I'll start with you because I saw that you had some strong thoughts about Tim Scott endorsing your former boss this weekend. Yeah. You know, just even listening to you talk about, you know, the women who have stood up, Olivia and I and some others are in a group text chat. And we actually talk about this all the time. It's like, how are we these well, mostly, not me, young women, the ones who are brave enough or whatever to stand up to this bully, which is all he really is. And it is frustrating. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that most people, and this is where I think Tim Scott comes in and certainly DeSantis and anybody else who's endorsing him, it's about power. It's about holding on to power and holding on to their position in politics rather than having, you know, the balls, sorry, but to, to stand up to him. And it is really, really frustrating. And, 
you know, an article came out, I don't even remember, but uh, about the people who needed to stand up and speak. And that article talked about old Trump people, which are, you know, General Milley and General Kelly and, you know, Esper, even though he has spoken out a bit. But and again, it was like all these men are supposed to speak up. None of them are. But yet what we seem to be doing isn't enough. And it's really frustrating. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's like all the rules have gone out the window in the era of Trump and people are just desperately trying to hold on to power knowing he's going to be the nominee probably. Probably. Maybe not. Let's hope. Olivia, what are you thinking watching this? I mean, I think those of us who, I mean, all of us watched January 6th and we thought, not here. This is what happens in banana republics. This is what happens in the places that we actually defend democracy, where we have military boots on the ground. And to see him... I guess, come back and take over the Republican Party with all those men Stephanie talked about going and saying, yes, you know, he's great. You know, whether it's the former Speaker of the House who was defeated by some of the Trump folks who says uh, he's going to support him again. I mean, what is it like to watch this while you and other women have stuck your necks on the line? It's infuriating. I mean, it is. it's also... It's nauseating, actually, at times to watch this cycle play out. I think, you know, for me, I came forward right before the 2020 election to say what everyone in that White House already knew, that he was unfit for office. And I have to tell you how upsetting it is to see that in some ways he's only gained momentum since then, since that election. And that, I think, to me, has been incredibly, one, alarming, and two, frustrating just to watch that everyone sort of is beginning and once again to fall back in line and in the place behind him. And it's, it's hard. And, and like, I, I waited, <laughs> I waited and waited for more people to come forward and it was super hard. And I can't tell you how grateful I was when these women like Stephanie and Alyssa and Cassie and Sarah, when they started to come forward after Jen, I, I was, I was like, okay, all right. I know, like, I, I, one, I was worried. <laughs> I was scared for them because I was like, oh, gosh, what can I do to have your backs? Because this is going to be so hard. And I know the safety net that you're going to be. And sometimes there really is no safety net. We have to fend for ourselves. And I'm just going to, like, I just want to wrap my arms around you and propel you forward and say, like, I could say it's going to be okay. It's, it's not really going to be okay. But <laughs> it will be okay if we just kind of stand together. But it has been very, very frustrating to see that all these people who know better, who have lived it, who've had those closed door conversations that everyone talks about because they're real. We've all we've had them with these individuals, watch them continue to enable him all over again. And I think that is as someone who's been a lifelong Republican, I know Stephanie feels this way, too. It is incredibly frustrating to see the party continue to decline the way it is because they should want to be better. And they know that Donald Trump is so damaging. They know that he is not fit for office. They know he's going to be bad for elections. And yet they're all falling behind, you know, him again, because I think, again, it's preservation of power. It's relevancy. It's wanting to remain in the circle. And at some point, I just want to say, like, when will the dam break? When will you decide that the GOP needs to change? Because the more that all of you fall back in line, the more that you enable him, the more the GOP goes down this dark spiral that it's spiraling towards that is no longer really where the American populace is, right? I mean, look, my candidate was Asa Hutchinson. I wanted him to do better because he was a public servant, right? And I, I felt like he would at least be civil, right? And he's behaved civilly in the past couple weeks, but there was no home for him in this party. <laughs> there was absolutely no opportunity for him to succeed. Well, and it feels like, Amisha, I don't know, I felt like I saw, even within our orbit, never President Obama, but I saw some of those power-hungry people who would do anything for the boss, even if it wasn't, you know, and it was normally like three steps down that somebody had told them to do something and they'd just do whatever. But it's like, you know, you're watching this and you're going... This is not the intelligence that I expect or I loved in the highest levels at the White House. And it's just frustrating. What are you thinking watching all of this? 
It's disappointing. I think it's a disappointing indictment on America, quite frankly. Not necessarily that he got elected the first time, but the fact that after January 6th, the fact that after so many uh, jurisdictions and multiple indictments, we're talking about 90 plus uh, felony charges. At this point, you could still have a guy who is the front runner for the Republican nomination. I think that tells us something about Republican voters, honestly. Because talk about 8, 10, 20 years ago, this would not have been an option whatsoever. Um, on top of that, I think that it tells us that, particularly in this conversation, where we're talking about women and, and women voters, as well as those, those women who've worked for several campaigns, the Donald Trump that got elected originally in 2016 is a very, is, he's the same Donald Trump today, uh, only with more criminality behind him. But the women changed. It was so hard for him to get female votes then in a way that if we look at the exit polling outside of, you know, out of the caucus in, in Iowa, if we look at the polling on national scale, women have particularly gravitated more towards Donald Trump today than they did years ago, despite the fact that he's had multiple women who have come forth with, um, with claims of sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual harassment, on top of the way that he talks about women broadly. This is a guy who was tweeting about women's appearances while he was in the White House. This is a guy who was making fun of former Miss, Miss USA's who had gained weight 10 or 15 years later. This is a guy who has gone out of his way to diminish women at every turn. So so it would make sense that women would be turned off by him. But what we're seeing now in this election cycle is an entirely different thing. And it's not because Donald Trump has changed his posture towards women. Quite frankly, he's still running a hyper-masculine campaign. He's still running an anti-woman campaign. However, more and more women have seemingly, you know, either lost their senses of sensibility or they've joined the cult of Trump. And I think that that's one of the most frightening parts, that America is on the precipice of you know, just throwing his democracy out of the window, that the rest of the globe is worried about our democracy standing and whether or not we'll even protect democracies abroad, because that's something that Donald Trump shows absolutely no interest in, in his coddling of dictators. But moreover, the fact that he's actually now picking up demographics that he wasn't even able to do in 2016, despite the outcomings of January 6th. That's crazy, right? So <laughs> I went to a book party during the Trump administration for a wonderful guy who was an intern at the beginning in our administration and then actually ended up in a role, Pat Kinane. Amisha, I don't know if you remember Pat, but it was at Rob Reiner's house out in Los Angeles. And Rob Reiner started the discussion by saying how many men in your administration, to Pat Kinane, by the way, he's like a Boy Scout. He said, how many men in your administration grabbed him by the And I, Stephanie, I mean, you were just in the White House working for this guy, but my, the glass that I was holding almost broke because I was thinking, oh my God, if you don't think that there was some problems in our administration too, you don't know. <laughs> and I was angry. And yet, Stephanie, there were so many who at the time were like, oh, it was just locker room talk. Walk me through what you were thinking, Stephanie, when you were working on that campaign, when it came out that he said that. <laughs> so much. So when the recording came out, my first initial gut reaction thought was like, oh, we're done. We're done. But then, you know, it the locker room top talk started to come out. And that narrative is what I'm talking about. The narrative yeah. that it's just locker room talk. And, you know, I, here I had been now with them. I started with, with Trump in 2015, in July, 2015. I was, I think one of the first 10 people on that campaign, literally first 10 people. So for me personally, and this goes to what we were talking about before with like Tim Scott and the endorsements. Now I was like, well, I've gone this far. I have to stick it out. I'm in the trenches now. Everyone hates me. Everyone, you know, all the Republicans I know hate me because I worked on the Romney-Ryan campaign. So I have to stick it out. Um, you kind of get this bunker mentality. And I started to buy into the, it's just locker room talk. It was dudes talking. We all hear men talk and be crass all the time. Obviously, looking back on that, I'm like horrified. But that is truly what I thought. I just thought... I'm in it now. I've been in it for a long time. I can't just walk away because I will be, I will be ruined professionally. I won't be able to, I will have nowhere to go. This is all I have left because I've yeah. put all my eggs in this man's basket. So, you know, and then 
everybody was begging him to apologize. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't because it's him. And then when he actually did that video where it sounds like, you know, he's being forced, which he was, and he apologized, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's good. He apologized. And again, looking back, because it is like being in a cult, looking back, you know, it's like, Stephanie, come on, you know better. But the fact that he apologized, we were all like, oh, he apologized. This is huge. He never apologizes. He understands the gravity of this situation. I, I mean, and... So many times I try to tell people this mindset and people just shake their head at me. But once you're in it, you're you're just you're in it. Well, despite the president, you know, saying that he could when he has money, grab him by whatever. He actually did appoint a number of women into high profile positions. Nikki Haley was appointed by Donald Trump as the ambassador to the United Nations. Do you remember any stories of anything that Trump said about Nikki Haley? Either of you, Olivia and Stephanie? You know, I personally don't remember anything. Another thing I will say about when you got into the Trump White House, and Olivia, I don't know if you ever noticed this, and I had already been kind of indoctrinated into this way of thinking on the campaign. <laughs> indoctrinated? I'm loving the cult terminology here. <laughs> I wore heels every day, even if I was going to be like traipsing through a field, because you just knew that Trump liked you to look a certain way. And so, you know, I changed my whole way of dressing and thinking and on, on my appearance. And so Nikki Haley, you know, she fit his profile just fine. Attractive woman, always dressed quite well, um, nice figure, that type of a thing. So I don't remember him saying anything negative about her. And I think it's because she fit his profile. I can remember him wanting me to tell a senator in Arizona not to wear sleeveless dresses one time because her arms were very unattractive. Stephanie, I can't say it to her, but you've got to go tell her. So I think that Nikki just fit the profile and I don't recall him saying anything. No, ever. No, I don't either. And let's like, let's just remember, she's probably the only person that I can think of in the administration that got a laudatory farewell in the Oval Office. I've never forgotten that moment, right? <laughs> I mean, she... Everyone's forgotten that one. I sat there watching in shock because I was like, you you did call him out. I had tremendous respect for her at the time. I worked with her a lot because I had the UN portfolio for Pence. And uh, I remember watching that moment with disbelief being like, wow, he's just he's just like expressing praise. And she's sitting there and she's yucking it up in the Oval. I mean, she got a grand farewell where most people, the farewell was either a tweet firing them or some disparaging remark, right? So, I mean, I think that really speaks to something there, I guess. <laughs> That's a really good point. And now <laughs> that she's running against him, it's uh, not so <laughs> jovial. What do you think the chances are that she could actually, especially with DeSantis out now, mount any sort of uh you know, resistance, I guess, for lack of a better term, or get the nomination? I have been more cynical. I'm pretty sure Stephanie knows this. I have been cynical from day one. I have always believed that it would be Trump who would get the nomination. I've never been on the Nikki bandwagon as much as, look, I do I want it to be someone else? Yes, 100% wholeheartedly. Do I think that she can pull it off? No, I think she tried I think she should have been a lot stronger in paving her own sort of lane in a stronger way. And I think by trying to figure out how to walk the careful line by garnering the support of his supporters and not calling him out, but sometimes calling him out, sometimes playing, you know, like the, oh, it's time for a new generation card. Like, I just don't think that resonated when his following doesn't splinter. So. I think she splintered her own base. And look, at some point, I actually, she offended me a couple of times, especially in the past couple of weeks. Like, just say it. Say it's slavery. I'm, I'm Mexican-American. You're a mixed child, too. Call it for what it is. Don't sit there and deliver one-liners that enable and perpetuate the type of movement that Trump is perpetuating by the way he behaves in his words. You're kind of playing into that. And as much as I want you to be Trump, I also think that it's irresponsible as a leader to embolden and fan those flames because i think that speaks to who you really are as a person in your character so it made me take a step back and question it but again it's tough because we all know that trump is an want to be an authoritarian dictator 
And it made it hard, but I have to say that if I'm feeling that way, who really understands the attitude, I have to say, how does another moderate Republican voter, when they look at her, like, I think there's just a lot of mixed feelings on in this field, right? I mean, I agree. I don't think she has much of a chance. I think that one thing about Trump's base, they love him for how tough he is, right? Whether that's authentic or not, his toughness, it's not, let me tell you. But she should have been tough. I mean, she should have come out swinging. I think that if if she was going to go for it, go down just fighting and swinging. And I think now coming out, she's being a little tougher, but I just think it's too little too late. And I think he'll be the the nominee. Amisha, what do you think watching this? I agree with both um, Steph and Olivia here. I think that there was a window of opportunity for Nikki Haley to come out swinging. She missed that window. The funders obviously moved away from Ron DeSantis a while ago, then moved into Tim Scott, then moved into Nikki Haley. They were looking for anybody but Donald Trump. But I feel like Nikki Haley's big albatross here is that she is a shapeshifter. Nikki Haley does a very good job of telling different audiences what she thinks they want to hear at different times. This is a woman who could have carved out a very strong space for herself with nuance, with understanding, particularly around the abortion issue, but also on some of the other hot button issues here. She's decided to take a very weird lane. And as the veteran Black person on this panel, I think that there is a lot of offense taken to her trying to relitigate the Civil War, trying to point to it as any other starting point with accept slavery and acknowledging what South the role South Carolina played not only in slavery and the slave trade, but also in trying to uphold that system. It was very frustrating to see her do that. Also acknowledging that this is a woman whose own father would not have gotten a job anywhere in academia if it wasn't for HBCUs reaching back and giving him a chance. She chose to take a moment to appeal to some of the most I think, destructive parts of the Republican Party, the ultra racist. She's also someone who throughout this campaign has run a nationalized campaign as if she was actually running directly against Joe Biden instead of trying to actually eke out some votes over Donald Trump. And she, quite frankly, appeals to a base that is not the current Republican Party. The interesting part about this is I look at Nikki Haley the same way I do, you know, no labels or a third party candidate, because at best she would be able to peel off some votes from Joe Biden, but she's not able to peel off any votes from Donald Trump. And to win the Republican nomination, you've got to run directly against Donald Trump. She does not have the hoots but to do it. She's afraid that she's going to turn off the Republican base. And quite frankly, I think that it's too little too late. And she should have bowed out at the same time that Ron DeSantis did. So New Hampshire is going to tell us a lot. We're going to learn whether she brought those independents to the table. But I think you make an excellent point. Why are they coming to the table when she's playing a little bit of milk toast or a little, you know, she's everybody's candidate when she's not and she's not saying the hard truths consistently? If, you know, Nikki Haley doesn't have a strong stand, it's probably going to be a depressing Donald Trump versus Joe Biden rematch with a lot of legal cases between now and November, which I don't know about you guys, but it's just like, this is depressing politics to me majorly. But what was also interesting is, you know, this case of January 6th of President Trump trying to deny the election results. The fact that we haven't been able to really get the charges to stick has been frustrating. The strongest case everyone kept saying was probably Georgia because he's on an hour long courting in which he's telling Republicans who are saying, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you have the wrong information, that he absolutely has the right information and that they just need to find the votes. Now this case, and it kind of happens a lot with Donald Trump, Stephanie and Olivia, I want to talk about this with the Donald Trump uh, resident experts, but he has found some impropriety with potentially some of the people involved. Um, Fannie Willis, who is the district attorney of Fulton County, has now been accused of having a romantic relationship with prosecutor Nathan Wade, who she hired. When I first saw this story, I was like, you've got to yeah. be kidding me, right? Uh... <laughs> like, come on, guys. We got to like have unimpeachable. <laughs> let's, let's not get involved in any of this. But if the accusations are true in Georgia, there's actually no Georgia law saying 
saying that either one of them should be bumped from this case or that there's any issue with what was happening. They are saying uh, that this is Trump in action. A lot of people behind the scenes are saying, you know, Trump is like a mob boss. He figures out the problem that's going on with somebody else, and he uses it to distract, distract, distract from his own significant issues. Meanwhile, Norm Eisen, who's our former White House attorney, Amisha, he's saying that Wade should resign from the case. So I wanted to get your all opinion. Obviously, you know, this is one of the things that we see a lot, but there are improprieties from people who are not just Donald Trump, and he uses them to stand up his own issues and say he's not so bad himself. What do you guys think of this? Stephanie, I'll start with you. Oh, so, you know, first of all, he does. Trump has some people behind the scenes who can just do oppo research like no other. I mean, very, very good. There were times when I was in the White House that I would get a file handed to me of oppo research of someone who had gotten in someone's crosshairs and, um, you know, and they will do whatever it takes to destroy them. It's part of what's so scary about speaking out, too, just to be clear. But, you know, I was like you when I saw that. I was like, are you kidding me? Can How did you not think this wouldn't come out? There's the court of law and then there's the court of public opinion. And so, you know, I do agree. I think that two things should happen. I think that the man should step down. And I think that Fannie Willis should probably speak out and just like say, hey, this happened. I'm not a perfect human being. This is what we're doing to remedy it. Let's get back, though, to the fact that he did X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's got to be acknowledged. I I really think so. Otherwise, you know, he's going to use it to fundraise. It's going to make it no matter what seem like everything's a sham and everything's against him. And so while they don't have to do anything and while nothing illegal has happened, the court of public opinion is a powerful thing. And I mean, even me who doesn't like him, I don't like how this looks. I don't think it looks good. I'm really disappointed. And I don't know how they didn't think that that would come out. Olivia, I'll let you respond. And then Amisha. I feel the same way. I think in the court of public opinion, like I just, it was really just upsetting to see that because I thought to myself, this is the last thing we needed on this, especially when he is the king of the weaponization of the justice system. Everyone's out to get me, you know, and they're like, there's all these narratives out there already. I don't think that this helped because now he has the opportunity to discredit the case, to discredit her. And I think that is what was so upsetting is like, that's what it'll be about. But look, on the other hand, let's just be very clear. None of these factors change the actual facts of the case and how strong it is. And you have all these people on record saying that this is what it was. Brett Raffensperger was in the middle of this, right? I mean, he has taken a stand against Trump. Like all of these people have told the truth, all of uh, most of them Republicans, right? So let's not forget that these are Republicans testifying truthfully about what really happened here. So none of that has changed, but I do agree with Stephanie that I think it has to be addressed because I think he is going to use this as he'll manipulate it and he'll use it to his own being, right? God, you all, come on. You know that they are going to be digging for absolute anything. And when they don't find anything, sometimes they try to make it up. So let's not give them any more ammo. And particularly on Fannie Willis, Amisha, I feel like Trump has gone after her every turn. He's been trying to diminish her, saying that her father was a Black Panther, saying, you know, things about her race baiting, other things. I thought of all of those, I thought those aren't going to take this down. But when I saw this, I thought, oh, God, why? What do you think? Because it's an easy target for him. To be clear, Donald J. Trump has a special ire towards Black people, but specifically Black women. And the attacks that he lodges against Black women are fast and furious, and they're quite frankly tropes and ignorance. Um, We have seen time and time again the over-sexualization of Black women, in particular him throwing out this, uh, what seems to be some type of um, uh, almost days of our lives as fairy tale love story or, you know, infidelity story, uh, plays part and parcel of what he does. He has claimed that, and and the right broadly, I would argue we've seen this uh, across Fox News with, uh, they did it to Kamala Harris, they've done it to uh, the judge here in D.C. in terms of these trials as well. This is something that they do, and it's a particular line of attack that they utilize against Black women, because optics means everything. And I agree with what Olivia said a moment ago. This is not helpful. 
be it whether it is true, false, or 75%, 16%, 12% true, it has absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump's case in Georgia. First and foremost, I think that it is used to, one, try to stall this case, drive a wedge, get another prosecutor. Georgia has been said by multiple people across multiple sides of the aisle, that's the strongest case against Donald Trump, period. And at the end of the day, I think he's going to try to do anything that he can to squash it. And he has paid particular interest to Fonnie Willis. He has done a very good job, I think, of trying to drive home attacks against her up to and including not only race-based attacks, but also attacks that have led her to have heightened security, to have her family have heightened security. This is a man who goes out of his way to diminish, insult, and drive wedges that are already existing in America because there isn't anyone who is thrown down, trodden upon more than the black woman in this country. And he plays to that base that he knows it resonates with. This is a particular optic situation. And I think that sadly, because of where I know America is, because of the hatred they still hold for black women in particular, it's probably going to sell, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with the case at hand. Yeah, well, and it is. It's troubling. I I think going back to what we were all saying, you know, you want women to be able to stand up and stand out. And back to what Stephanie was saying, he uses these things and uses sexism and racism to his advantage. I have a question about that because Elise Stefanik, I was watching her on the Sunday morning shows a couple Sundays ago. And, you know, in the aftermath of January 6th, I think there weren't few people defending the people who ran to the Capitol. And she started using the term January 6th they were hostages. Yeah, hostages. You guys know Elise Stefanik. What do you think of Elise Stefanik, her what looked like a bid to BVP, and her absolute defense of Trump on these things? I mean, it's the same thing. It's they're falling in line. And he had started to say it, he being Trump. And it's clear that talking points went around and that's going to be the new thing. These are hostages, you know, that deserve uh, sympathy. And, you know, Trump has said, free the hostages as well. I was disappointed, but like anymore, I'm not surprised. Like to even just say I'm disappointed feels like nothing anymore. It feels empty because I'm just constantly disappointed, but not surprised. And it's hard because you just sit here and you rack your brain, like how, what can we say? What can we do to make people understand that this is not okay, that this is wrong, that he is brainwashing people that I can't get anywhere. So it's disappointing, but not surprising is my go-to. And I, I don't know what else to say. The case is in Georgia, you know, about the election abuse. You know, he was told time and time again, he did not win this election. And yet he kept saying, find me ways to win this election. It's now become about the prosecutor, which it's not. It's actually about January 6th. And so Elise Stefanik, who used to be given to me by a number of Republican women, young Republican women who are looking at her as a role model. She's out there saying January 6th hostages. Olivia, what do you think? Is she going to be the vice president? I mean, she's certainly angling for it. I think, you know, if you put him in a ring and the boxing ring, it'll be Elise Stefanik. It'll be Marjorie Taylor Greene, Christy Nome. I only dropped Christy Nome because there was always like conversations internally in the VP's office, there was concern that the first time around that Trump would drop Pence from the ticket that time around and replace her. So mm. I always think about her. I remember the fear of when she boarded Air Force One and everybody was talking behind the scenes of like, is this it? Is this happening? So I, I don't discount her because she's always kind of been there as his unwavering supporter. And look, he's about looks at the end of the day. I think that's going to play it. I mean, I hate to sound sound that way, but this is Donald Trump we're talking about, like we talked about Nikki earlier. I think that's going to play a role. But, you know, I don't know. We'll see how this plays out. It's a casting call. It is. Absolutely. And they're desperate. That's so fascinating that they were worried that he was going to drop Mike Pence for Christy Nome last time around. Christy Nome, talking about affairs, has had her own allegations that she's had an affair with Corey Lewandowski, who, of course, you worked with in the Trump orbits. Tell me about that. It only matters everywhere else. It just doesn't matter in the Trump world. So you can have an affair if you work with Trump, but you can't have yes. an affair if you're a district attorney or a prosecutor or anything like that. 
Just like everybody's cheating if he loses, but then when he took Iowa so handily, you know, there was no cheating going on at all. 56,000 Iowans, Stephanie. That's just what's amazing to me is this media narrative that there's so much enthusiasm for Donald Trump and it's 56,000 uh, Iowans <laughs> out of the 2 million registered voters, out of more than 700,000 registered Republicans. But do you know anything about Christy Nome and that world of the Corey stuff? Oh, I don't want to get sued, so I'm just not going <laughs> to talk about that. I have both been sued by this world, and it's just hell on earth, and I just don't want to go there. You know, I'll just say this. I was there for Corey's arrival into the Republican scene back at the Republican National Committee about 20 years ago. That's showing my age. I, I moisturize a lot, so I try to look younger, but... Um, but I, I remember that that was the beginning of the changing of the guard to speak. And I remember Bush staffers and those of us at the RMC kind of watching that type of persona and those people starting to show up. And I'll just say that he was not looked on kindly by many about the type of human being that he was. Is that going to get me sued, Stephanie? No, I don't think okay. so. Uh, <laughs> we've now all kind of referenced uh, age, and I think we're young, uh, fine wine, <laughs> aging just beautifully. But the race looks to be two men who have been on uh, Social Security eligible for at least a decade running against one another. Now, one of them, uh, a Democrat, Amisha, Joe Biden, is not going to be on the New Hampshire ballot. So talking about media narratives, I just suspect if he doesn't win a write-in campaign, which frankly, his campaign is not organizing, the write-in campaign is New Hampshire Democrats who have decided that they want to write in Joe Biden. Joe Biden actually said he's not going to be on this ballot. Like it or not, about the age of our <laughs> leader on the Democratic side, this gives an opening for someone, potentially Dean Phillips, to get a media narrative that he did better than expected. What are you thinking about New Hampshire and the Democrats right now, Amisha? That the New Hampshire write-in isn't going to make a darn bit of difference, not for Democrats anyway. I think that, you know, our primaries are still a little, a little ways off and that Biden's biggest hurdles are going to be black voters and younger voter turnout. Um, not that they are going to show up and vote third party. That's not going to happen, but that they won't show up to the polls at all. I think that he's got to do a lot more work. His campaign has to do a lot more work to showcase the, the policy wins that have been had under his administration. In addition to naming, shaming and putting the blame on exactly who it lies with in terms of congressional Republicans on some of the big ticket items that Democratic voters really want to see around student loan debt relief, around, you know, affordable housing, making housing more available towards individuals who, quite frankly, are living in areas where they cannot afford the cost of living. It is what it is. Ensuring that we have, you know, affordable prescription drugs. Obviously, there was work done to reduce the cost of insulin for seniors, for those who are on Medicare. However, the majority of people, specifically young people who have diabetes, are still paying an exorbitant cost to be able to find that medication. I think that there has to be a lot done for this president, specifically on ensuring that the things that those young people and those Black voters are asking for are met up to in, in including the narrative around Israel and our support of Israel, as it seems as though there is a prime minister who, quite frankly, is all too OK with basically knocking Palestinians off of the map. Those are the things he needs to worry about. Dean Phillips can go fly a kite somewhere because he's not going to get voters anywhere. It doesn't matter. But Biden does have some trouble to focus in on. Dean Phillips is the least of his worries. You know, I had Dean on last week and he definitely doesn't come from the background of needing any student loan debt relief. He's one of the wealthiest member of Congress, but he is standing up and saying some things that Democrats are saying behind closed doors, like they want a younger leader. They want someone... You you know, who has new, fresh vision. I know there's a lot of enthusiasm behind Wes Moore or Gretchen Whitmer or Josh Shapiro or, I mean, name them. We have like tons of young leaders. Ro Khanna is there in New Hampshire, uh, supposedly out to get people to the polls. When it comes down to it, Olivia, Stephanie, what do you think as Republicans this time around, would you ever vote for Joe Biden or would any of those younger candidates actually make you open to a Democrat for president? 
I don't have a problem voting for Joe Biden, especially against Trump. I mean, there is no choice here. It's preservation of our country or Trump, and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. And I will be out there in whatever town you need me to go to talking to people and explaining to them why and explaining policies in a way that makes sense to them and trying to speak to moderate people and saying this is why. And, you know, there's a lot of narratives that get spun out there. But from my eyes as a moderate Republican, he's a moderate Dem and we've just got to stand behind him. But I think with other candidates, honestly, I think it would depend. I think it would sort of depend on where they stand on things and whether they would be more center or whether they're going to get pulled to the more like far left side of the party that I still am not quite comfortable. That still actually sometimes could be hesitation, which is why, you know, I've never called myself a Democrat because I have a hard time identifying with some of those things. But it doesn't maybe make me like one of those haters of all Democrats and all Democrats are evil. I think that's ridiculous when you look at, you know, the immoral party that we have and the GOP and, you know, you have people like Moms for Liberty or whatever and the problems that the founder has. I mean, there's just no comparison. Oh so just gosh. like, don't even, don't even, right? Let's not pretend. Like, yeah. I mean, like we're talking. Yeah. Olivia, it's, it's, it's sex scandals yeah. everywhere. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's like, and, you know, and here they are like, oh, yeah, no, ban the book and mentions this. And I'm like, that's because you're sitting there feeling guilty about what you did last night. I mean, Jesus, come on. It's so gross, right? Yeah. I mean, Stephanie, you're a mom. We're, yeah. you know, like this hypocrisy is just rich. Like, my God. Doesn't Trump start his trial next month with <laughs> regard to the off of Stormy Daniels? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like. Again, I know. But hey, look, I mean, I don't have a problem backing a porn star. I'm all on the stormy train. I was like, go get him, girl. Go get him. That's where I am on this. So there it is. Uh, things I never thought I'd say, having grown up in a very conservative household. But here I am. I'm cheering for the porn star. Let's do this, girl. I've got you. Yeah, I'm a girl's girl. Let's go. But yeah, but look, I mean, back to that, though, I will say I'm super impressed with Governor Whitmer. Like she's done a lot for her state. And I think she's eloquent, female, like I hope to see her someday on the ticket. And I think it'd be a smarter approach because I think honestly, if it were her against Trump, I wouldn't I wouldn't be as worried. But I'd I think the messaging would be very important on how she would talk to more moderate women on things like abortion, on topics like that. I think that would have to be carefully crafted. But I don't know. You raise a good point that Joe Biden's already done this. Steph, what's your thought on Joe Biden? Yeah, I've already said publicly that if it came down to Trump and Biden, I would vote for Biden. And I have no problem saying that. I don't know why there hasn't been some kind of a Republicans for Biden group, you know, started that could travel around, like you said, Olivia, and speak to people and say, this is why he's okay. And, you know, I think it was Liz Cheney that said we can survive bad policies. I'm not saying all of his policies are bad, but I would much rather have a president whose policy, some policies I disagree with than a president who is going to try to become a dictator and take away all of the freedoms that we have if you dare disagree with him. So, um, yeah, I would have no problem voting for Biden if it comes down to it. But how bonkers is it that we have, we're going to most likely have two candidates that nobody seems to want. And yet here we are. Here we are. The choice between the exes, right? It's crazy. Yeah. Last words. This has been so much fun, ladies. I can't wait for more of this throughout the course of the campaign. I have a feeling, I don't know, some part of my gut thinks something unexpected is going to happen. And I don't know what, but I keep thinking maybe something will. My goal with this podcast is also to get into the policy conversations. You know, where can we agree? We didn't go there today, but we will. This is a big election night, New Hampshire. We're going to see what happens with two of your former boss, uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> and so I wanted to focus it there. But any last words to leave us with uh, before New Hampshire? And I can't wait to have you all back. I just want to have faith in democracy that works. And I think that this election cycle is one that will prove whether we stand the test of making our democracy strong, making it the envy of the world, or one in which our democracy just falls apart. Olivia? Actually, I thought your comment was poignant, Johanna, because <laughs> when you said that, when you like to talk about policy, I was thinking like that, oh, yeah, right. 
it used to be that we used to debate policy when looking at the candidate. It used to be that I used to look at the Republican field and be like, I like this person's policy. I like that person's policy. But it's not really not really that anymore. We're not having the policy discussions. It's, it's like, can you stake a stand against Donald Trump, please? Like, can we get him off the radar so we can get back to that? And it's hard because you're right. It's very hard to have serious policy discussions. It's hard to have an honest discussion, perhaps like, for example, on the border that we're seeing how that's playing out. No one's actually serious about solving the border problems now, right? Because it's become this thing where you just kind of say stuff and you dodge things for the sake of power. And I think that's just been so emblematic of Donald Trump and where we are today, where now we're just like, look, forget about the policy, this democracy or not, we got to band together. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that is just so significant for our country that we're we're not solving things for each other. We're just sort of like, dude, it's fascism. It's whether Stephanie and I go to jail and you ladies send us care packages to try to get us out or try to get us through it. Like, that's where we are, right? If you could just put money in my account for ramen, I'd be appreciative. <laughs> and no, I mean, with all laughter aside, that is the scariness that we face. And I think, you know, when I listen to John Jr., who is, of course, married to Kimberly Guilfoyle, who used to be married to Gavin Newsom, our governor of California, which is wild. But when I listen to John Jr. say that he wants to run next, I think we should believe him. And his dad could try to, you know, manipulate everything if given the chance. Stephanie, last word to you. I'm going to try to be optimistic here and just say, I think that more conversations like this, this, the four of us, right? We've got two Democrats, two Republicans here who managed to have a really good conversation. And so while I get so frustrated and disappointed and many days just want to like watch trash TV and never leave my house, I hope that we can somehow over the next year figure out a way to have groups like us speak to bigger people because I do think it resonates. I think when we, you and I, Joanna, when we spoke for that college, like we got such rave reviews and it wasn't us fighting at all. Yeah. It was supposed to be a debate. It wasn't really a debate, but I think that that's what we need right now is conversation. And if we can just figure out how to take our conversations bigger, I'm hoping we can make an impact because as Amisha said, I think that this is a big moment for our country. It's a big decision to make. So we've got to all try to do our part. I believe we can and we must. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me this week on Press Advance. I'm so impressed with all of you, grateful for your service and really grateful for your voices on this podcast. I loved the conversation with Stephanie, Amisha, and Olivia. You know, when you've worked in the White House and you understand the gravity of the decisions that are made in that place, I think you can step back and realize that no one's going to get everything right. That the importance is that you try and that you do everything you can for the American people and not just for yourself. I really enjoyed that conversation. There will be many more to come with people who don't all agree. I'm really grateful for you joining me. And if you liked this episode of Press Advance, please do subscribe, like, rate, and review. You can find me on social media at Johanna Masca. I continue to be grateful for Situation Room Studios that produces this podcast under the incredible team of Christine Barada, 